0: Father, we ask that this might be the reality of our experience through your word and through your spirit, that we might live in worship of you.
1: Malachi 1, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel." A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, priests, who have shown contempt for my name. But you have asked, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you offer lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty." But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled, and its food is contemptible, and you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it but then sacrifices the blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. This is the word of the Lord.
0: So I assume that many of you would know of the satirical online newspaper called The Onion. If you're not familiar with it readily, then you may have heard the recent story, oh, I don't know, a year or so ago, where they, oh, no, three years ago, time flies, where they declared that Kim Jong-un, the the supreme leader of North Korea, is the sexiest man alive. Now, they meant that satirically, but it turns out that, uh, that the American press concluded that communist China doesn't get satire. Because the People's Daily English version picked up the story and published it as if it was a genuine story. So the American press thought, and they concluded that the communist press doesn't get satire. But apparently, according to the Kennedy School of Government, one of the professors there, uh, apparently it's the American press that doesn't get political satire when it comes out of China. Because when China published the story, they put it next to a story about a local official, a local government official, who had just gone back to work after a sex tape that he made was broadcast publicly. And the press couldn't aim directly at him, so they put his story next to this story about Kim Jong-un to make a point. Well, anyway, that, all I'm really trying to do by that story is to introduce the onion, for those of you who don't know it. So here is a, the, the relevant story from The Onion from 2000. Israelites sue God for breach of covenant. Attorneys representing the tri- tribe of Benjamin filed suit against God in New York Southern District Court Monday, citing 117 specific instances where God breached the covenant. The Israelites are seeking $4.2 trillion in punitive and compensatory damages. The lawyer writes, My client, the children of Israel, entered into this covenant with the defendant in good faith. They were assured in writing that in exchange for their exclusive worship of God, they would be designated his chosen people. And as such they would enjoy his divine protection and guidance for eternity. Yet, practically from the moment this covenant was signed, the defendant has exhibited a blatant and willful disregard for its terms. The lawyer continues, the covenant states that the plaintiff is entitled to all the lands of the earth. We've read that, right? This too has not occurred. Furthermore, it states that the plaintiff will become more numerous than the dust thereof. This has not occurred either, assuming, of course, that the world contains more than 14 million particles of dust. The Onion is remarkably well-informed about the covenant graces and the covenant obligations. Uh, Now, in response... The, the, oh, Sorry, not, the lawyer continues. For 5,760 years, the plaintiff has honored their side of the contract, uh, worshipping the defendant with total devotion. Uh, but in return, they've gotten kiss uh, They trusted him to protect them, and he threw them to everyone, from the Egyptians to the Cossacks to the Nazis to the Palestinians. I'd have a hard time believing that anyone even remotely familiar with the plaintiff's history would argue that they are not victims of detrimental reliance. And finally, they quote the the, the defendant's lawyer as saying this. Harrigan, the lawyer, went on to note that the Lord has not ruled out filing a breach of covenant countersuit against the Israelites, claiming that they have failed to worship the Lord in an acceptably faithful manner. Among the evidence, he cited, a 70% rise in interfaith marriage among the Jews since 1900, and last year's turnout of just 36% at worldwide Yom Kippur services. Now, whatever the level of satire intended here, clearly the person who wrote it had some basic understanding of the Old Testament covenant. The author also has some basic understanding of the book of Malachi, because the Onion was not the first to engage in this sort of rhetoric, because the book of Malachi is basically not a formal lawsuit but it's certainly an aggressive argument akin to a lawsuit between God and Israel and that's the entire book of the four chapters of Malachi is this lawsuit where first Israel brings charges against God and then God brings charges against Israel And they bounce back and forth. Now, I think there's probably, I didn't think to count them, maybe seven charges that go back and forth here. We won't have time to go through them all. But let me introduce you to a few of them, whatever we have time for, and then illustrate how we sometimes do the same thing with God. So turn with me to Malachi chapter 1, page 675. Now, for those of you who are here for the first time or don't come here regularly, we've actually been surveying the whole of the Old Testament. And for those of you who've been here all this time, I think it's 35 sermons, today we finish the survey of the Old Testament. Well done. Congratulations on your patience. But Malachi is the last book in the Bible, the way the English Bible is arranged. And it's clearly not the end of the story. So we're going to look a little bit, uh, after a couple of weeks where we talk about uh, some other topics, then we're going to get go into it introduction of the, how this plays out in the New Testament as a whole. But we've been looking at a survey of the entire Old Testament, and so we take big chunks of Scripture. This morning, we take the last book of the Bible, book of Malachi, probably the last book chronologically. We're not actually sure how Malachi fits in with Ezra and Nehemiah. We've just been looking at Ezra and Nehemiah. Malachi faults Israel for some of the same things that Ezra and Nehemiah faulted Israel for. So Malachi, may be situated historically right in the middle, or no, right toward the end of the book of Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah came in and cleaned things up. So maybe that happened after Malachi. Otherwise, perhaps what happened is after Nehemiah cleaned things up, then Israel went back to the same old problems. But let's look today together at the lawsuit between Israel and God. And it really starts with Israel. Israel's first complaint against God comes out in chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Listen to this from chapter 1, verse 2. I've loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? And God responds, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I loved Jacob. Esau I've hated. And I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now, there's a a lot going on here. We can't cover it all because I want to take you through more than one of these accusations. But I do have this devotional that, as I have time and energy, I post online at thebibleyear.wordpress.com. As you have time and energy, take a look at it. You'll have more detail there. But what I want to focus on here is this first complaint. They say, God, you haven't loved us. Now, Israel has some evidence on its side. In their historic circumstance, they're saying, God, you haven't loved us, because look at how hard our lives are. And we've talked about that. Let me review it briefly. We talked about it the previous weeks. You see, Israel at this point was a nation of immigrants, a nation of impoverished immigrants, not the kind that often represented in this church. They didn't come over for, for grad school and enter its professions. But they came in and they were impoverished. They had been taken into exile, captured, and deported. And then a new empire arose, and a new empire said, Well, look, you can go back to your homeland. And a lot of them didn't want to go. Maybe 10% of those in exile went back to Palestine because they had gotten settled. They weren't in their own country. They would have faced some ethnic and, and racial uh, uh, criticism or contempt, but at least they'd gotten settled in the new country. And Nehemiah was one of those who'd stayed back. And those who came back to Palestine, they had no homes. They had to rebuild. They had no crops. They had to replant. Uh, they had to build the altar. Then they had to build the temple. Then they had to build the city wall. And this all took about a century because they were facing constant opposition. Their lives were hard. And they basically said, God, if you loved us, be so powerful. If you loved us, our lives would not be so hard. Now, that, I think, should probably sound familiar, right? Because, what do we say? When our lives get hard. And in this world, most of us, a few people I've known in life, have lived charmed lives, but for most of us, and if you're young, maybe you haven't seen it yet, but for most of us, life has dips valleys. and valleys. Life can get hard sometimes. It's not always hard. But what is it? When life gets hard, what if, we don't think about all those glorious times, the easy times, the comfortable times. We think about the hard times. And I think it's pretty natural for us to say to God, if you love me, why is my life so hard? It's the same thing they were saying. If you love us, why is our lives so hard? And notice God's response. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I've loved Jacob. Esau, I've hated. Now, a lot of people, you'll read this and you'll get fixated on Esau, I have hated, and how is that fair? Hopefully, I'll get had a chance to cover that in the devotional. Let's not fixate on that this morning. Let's fixate on this. What's the point here? In this talk about Esau, uh, I hated, Jacob I've loved. Uh, Esau, uh, I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. What's really going on here is this. God is saying to Israel, do you want proof that I love you? Your lives are hard. Admittedly, but where are your lives hard? And you're still alive. If you want to be pedestrian about this, you could compare it to the glass half-filled, glass half-empty. Israel looked at the fact that they were struggling in the new land. But God said, look, I don't owe you anything. I loved you and called you to worship me and obey me, and you didn't and I sent prophets to warn you, and you ignored them. I I, I sent you into exile. God is saying, I didn't have to pull you back. I didn't have to keep you alive. But but even though, you know, God had given them two out of the three Abrahamic promises, even though they disobeyed God for centuries, and God kept warning, and God sent them into exile, God has now brought them back and given them those same two promises over again. They're still alive. They have descendants. They are descendants of Abraham and his descendants and their forebears. And God's given them a new land. Yeah, life is hard. But it's not as hard as it might be. And so he says compare Esau. You know, Jacob and Esau were the original ancestors to Israel and Edom. Israel the country and Edom the country. And he says compare Jacob and Esau. And both of them prospered. God blessed both of them. But God chose Jacob and not Esau. And now he says, compare their descendants. Compare your lives as Israelites. The lives of the Edomites. Because the same enemy that brought Israel into exile brought Edom into exile. And Edom never returned. So, God says in verse 4, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, We will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. Edom will never be built. And today, we still know the country of Israel. Nobody knows the country of Edom. And so what God says to them is, don't compare what you hope for with what you have. Compare what you have with what you could have lost. You could have lost your lives. You could have lost your land, and now you have both. Now, we have to be really careful with how we apply this to our own lives, right? If your life is comfortable, you can't turn to somebody who's suffering and say, look, compare what you have with what you might have lost. You still, you know, your, your, glass is, your glass is half full, it's not half empty. We can't tell that to people who are suffering when we're not. But we can say that to ourselves when we're suffering. And think about how much more we have than Israel ever had. I mean, let's face it, on a pedestrian level, most of us don't have to worry about where the food's going to come from. Most of us live in homes or college dorms. Most of us on a material level have a reasonably good life. Most of us have homes where parents are flawed, but they love us. Or our children are flawed, but they love us. Or they will once they get through the next couple of years. But beyond all that, and here's where we really need to hear what the New Testament tells us. How do we know that no matter how hard our lives get, and lives may get hard, no matter how hard our lives get, how do we know that God loves us in a way that Israel never could know. Because of Jesus and the promises that we have in Jesus, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. This God who sent his own son for us can't possibly not love us. We may get frustrated with what our lives are like. And in our time of weakness, we may say, God, if you really loved me, I wouldn't be going through this. But let's face it, that's a time of weakness when our perspective is distorted. We know, because Christ has demonstrated that God loves us. So we know that even when we slip into this accusation against God, the answer comes back. Not from heaven. The answer comes back from outstretched arms on a cross. Oh. I love you, Jesus says. You know that. That's their first accusation against God. Now, here's the problem with arguing with God. Is that God talks back. So they make one accusation against God. And then God follows up with maybe three accusations against them. So here's first complaint against Israel. Chapter 1, verse 6. A son loves, honors his father, and a, and a slave honors his master. If I'm your father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect to me, says the Lord Almighty? Even your priests show contempt for my name. But you ask, how do we show contempt for your name? And God replies, by offering defiled food on my altar. You ask, how have we defiled you? God says, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? So here's God's first accusation against them. Remember, God showed grace. God blessed. And God said, there's only two things I ask of you. One is to worship me. And Onion got that right. What Onion missed was, God said, worship me. And God said, also treat each other rightly. And Onion kind of overlooked that one. And God focuses on that first one. Worship me rightly. He says, you know, sin can lead to death. Or God says, that the judgment of, of, of sin is death. God says, I have a legal right to kill you for being sinful, but I don't. All I ask for you is to bring an animal and sacrifice that animal. Yeah, you have to kill the animal, and yeah, it costs you some money. It's a significant contribution. They got to eat a lot of the animal, but they had to give some of the animal to the altar, to the gods, to the temple, and so forth. And God said, look, I'm making a major concession here. And they say, mm, it's a burden. It's a, a financial burden. It's troublesome. We don't want to sacrifice our lambs. We don't want to give up some of our wealth for God, to worship God. So, what they did was they took their worst animals, the ones that were diseased and they were going to have to kill anyway. And they said, Look, this is wasted to me. I'm going to have to kill it. I may as well give it to God and let them kill it. The priest kill it. A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor to me? Yeah, and so they said, well, worship is too great a burden. You know, and, and God calls us to the same thing, to worship. And so we want to be really careful about saying, well, worship is burdensome. Or, or turning worship into a time where we ha- kind of have to be amused. Or, or where we kind of have to be entertained, you know. We, we want to be careful about complaining about things like, all oh, the time... That worship starts, or how long it takes, or how long the sermon takes. And, oh, it'll be it'll be on time. Oh, oh I could go very long. I, we want to cover all the reasons, all six reasons. Okay, um, complaining about the music, or complaining about. Oh, do you realize that churches are no longer put in pews? If this church were built today, it probably wouldn't have pews. Why? Churches have theater seating because it's more comfortable, and snack bars because well, you can't ask for people to go for an hour and a half without a Starbucks or. You know, casual atmosphere, and we set up all these. You know, it's going to be entertaining. It's going to be fast paced. It's got to move my heart. It's got to be oh non cognitive because oh I don't want my brain to work on Sunday. That's Monday to Friday. It, all this stuff is so burdensome. Whoa, you know we we got to be real careful because that's kind of what was going on here. They were complaining that it's burdensome. Then comes God comes back with another, a second complaint against Israel. Chapter 2, verse 1. And and this one, I need to hear. Chapter 2, verse 1. And now you priests. I'm not a priest, but closest equivalent today. "and, And now you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen, and if you don't resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you. I will curse your blessings. I will turn your blessings into curses. I have already cursed them, because you have not resolved to honor me. And the priests were committing two sins in that time. First of all, when the people brought these defective, deficient sacrifices, the priests didn't rebuke the people. The priests actually offered them in sacrifice. And God's saying to the priest, you're you're the gatekeeper. Yeah, they insult me by bringing these things, but you're the one who insults me all the more by accepting them as offerings. And then he said a second thing, verse 7, a second complaint against the priest. The lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty. And people seek instruction from his mouth, but you've turned from the way, and by your teaching, you've caused many to stumble. So, the priests only had two jobs. One was to offer sacrifice, And the other was to preach the Bible. And they were offering these lousy sacrifices that no one else would want to eat. And then they weren't teaching the Bible anymore. And so God's first accusation against the worshippers, and then his the second accusation is against those who were running the worship for not following Scripture and for offering, you know, for accepting weak offerings. And this is the word to our pastors today. People like Minister Jen or Pastor Sandy or Pastor David and me Pastor Caleb and so forth. And it's also a word to our churches. You know, if you survey the American culture, I know because I- I've listened to some of these preachers in decades ago. And you, there's a lot of people out here a lot of pastors out there who can preach exposition, an exposition. And who don't. Because the churches won't tolerate it. And if you, don't, if you do, then they would go to some other church where they don't have to listen to it. You know, they get something more entertaining, more multimedia. And one of the things I like about this church is that if I don't preach something substantial, then people... Criticize me. This is a wonderful thing. But not all churches are like that. And and so it's really hard for pastors to stand up against the tide when the tide is sweeping the country. And so what, what this text tells us, what Malachi says to the priest in his day is, even if it means you have to stand up to the tide, against the tide, you have to. Priest, your responsibility is to ensure that that people worship God with their hearts, and your responsibility is to teach from Scripture. The lips of a priest are to preserve knowledge, and that wasn't going on. So God challenged him on it. God's third complaint against Israel comes in chapter 2, 10 to 16, and this is the piece that the onion missed. Chapter 2, verse 10. This is one illustration of the piece that the onion mess. Do we not all have one father? He doesn't mean all people in the world. He means all Israelites. Do not all Israelites have one father? Do not all Christians have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? And now he illustrates two examples of unfaithfulness, both related to, To marriage. In the first example, they were again Israelites marrying unbelievers. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever may may he be, the Lord will remove him from the tents of Jacob. God will cut him off. See, here's the thing. Anytime the Israelites married some other people from other religion, then what they'd end up doing, you know, you've got to keep peace in the family, and it doesn't really matter. You worship both gods. You worship Jehovah, and you worship all these other gods that your wife or, or your husband brought into the marriage. So God had said, you don't marry unbelievers. And then they followed it up with something else, the inverse. The believers... We're getting divorced. Verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Doesn't this sound like a contemporary problem? A second wives club? First wife, I'm sorry, First Wives Club, their wives were getting older, and the man said, I want a younger wife. And they were divorcing their own wives to marry younger. And that's a hugely contemporary problem. And let there be no mistake about it, you know, in the American church, divorce is a huge issue. But let's not look down on the American church. Let's admit this. There is probably nothing more rewarding in our lives than being married on its good days or in its good months. There's probably nothing more challenging we'll do than be married. And it's awfully easy to think, I've had enough, I'm walking out of this. There is recently in the news, I told you about the first first episode of it, the first uh, scenario, now the second scenario has developed. There is a famous, uh, another famous American pastor who was caught out in having an affair, and he said, well, yeah, but my wife had one first. Well, now it's been announced this week that he's getting a divorce, that he's filing for divorce. Now, it's one thing to be divorced. It's another thing entirely to... Take the initiative in divorcing your spouse. And what this text says, in strong terms, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and wail because he no longer looks for favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure. Why won't God let me worship him? Why does God not want me in church? It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. So, when Irene and I got married... We were living in Australia, and we got married in Malaysia, and my parents were in the U.S., and in those days, you know, you didn't travel a lot. It's not like today where you'd go on business trips all around the world, nothing thought. You know, and my father had health conditions, so it, he really couldn't make it to the, he couldn't make it to the wedding. So we had maybe 200 Malaysians at the wedding, and me. And I knew one other, one other couple, apart from my wife, I knew one other couple from the wedding, and they had to come from our church in Australia and come and, to, to be part of our wedding. Now, a couple years later, the husband came home from a business trip, and the wife said, I want you to move out. It was, not, it was just you know, kind of like midlife crisis thing. There was nothing obvious going on. It was just midlife crisis. She kicked him out and and, of course, they were going to a church. Our church was about 150 people, so she had to find another church to go to because he'd grown up in that church. And so she started going to another church. Now, I wasn't there at the time because we'd already gone back to the U.S. and then we're going on to Singapore. But what does God say under that circumstance? For those, not those who are divorced, but for those who take the initiative in getting divorced. You weep and wail because the Lord no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It's because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth. God says, why are you still coming to church? Think about this, who was, you know, those of you who are single, before you get married, if people get really idealistic and, and rush off and get married, or, or I maybe mean, it takes two or three years, but you get married with all these rosy ideas. Think about this seriously. Once you get married, It's nearly impossible to separate your relationship with God from your relationship with your spouse, Malachi says. This is serious. How we treat each other in marriage has bearing on how we treat, you know, on how God treats us. Why does God no longer want your worship? It's because the Lord is the witness. Now the text goes on to several more complaints. Israel has a second complaint against God. God has a fourth complaint against Israel. Israel has a third complaint against God. And then it comes down to the end, in chapter 4. And here's why I want to skip ahead to make sure we cover this. God has heard all of Israel's complaints. And he's pointed out to some failings in Israel. When is this all going to stop? is where Malachi ends. You know, this is the end of the Bible. You can't end on this dismal, depressing note. We don't want to end this series on this note, let alone end the whole Bible on this note, right? So how does, the, how does it end? Malachi says this. Surely the day is coming. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, Israel w- will be my treasured possession. I will spare them. As the Father has compassion and spares the Son who serves him. And you'll again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Chapter 4, verse 1. Surely the day is coming. It'll burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire. Not a root or branch will be left of them. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. What Malachi does, as the Old Testament ends, this is the hope that this hard life, which creates accusations from us against God, and creates frustrations of God with us, this hard life is not going to last forever. Malachi looks ahead and says, surely the day is coming. On that day I will act, and things will be different, entirely different then. Surely the day is coming. For you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness, will rise with healing in its rays. The sun will come up, and it will spread the light of righteousness and healing all around the world. This day is coming. And what do we see when John the Baptist comes? He quotes these verses. It was said about John the Baptist to Zechariah, his father, He will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Alluding to Malachi chapter 4, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make a ready people prepared for the Lord. Malachi chapter 3 says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. And Luke chapter 3 says about John the Baptist, he's the voice of one calling a new wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Malachi looks forward to a distant, uh, to, to the future that is so distant he can't see it clearly. But when John the Baptist comes, John the Baptist says, "I'm the one whom Malachi promised would prepare the way for the Lord, and the Lord is coming." Now, from our perspective, that Lord has come. What surprises us is that it's a two-stage process. He has begun to make all things new. The Son of Righteousness has risen. The dawn has broken. And life is beginning to get transformed. Not just life, not just our circumstances around us, but, but we are being transformed. So that this day is the beginning of this promise. Now, we still look forward to a future day when Everything will be transformed and we will be entirely transformed. But this is the promise of Malachi, read through the eyes of the New Testament, is that this day of accusation from us against God, the day of God's counter accusation toward us, this day is over and a new day has dawned. A day when God comes and invites us to come, a day when God calls us his children. And invites us to call him Father. A day when God reaches into our lives and replaces this heart, transforms this heart that's so prone to resentment toward Him or resentment toward others. And God replaces that heart with a bias toward loving Him and a bias toward loving each other. Life is still not entirely easy all the time, but it's a lot easier than it was. And the New Testament looks forward to a day when it will be spectacularly easy as we live with God and with each other in worship and in kindness. Let's pray together.